So more on spirits in her talk, Death by Poisoning, Cautionary Tales and Inter-Ethnic Accusations in Contemporary Sikkim. Kiki, the floor is yours. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Daniel. Um, uh, yeah, so at the very outset, I would actually like to shout out to Katie, Katie Fitzgerald <laughs> for making this possible. And also uh, Wilson College, University of Oxford, uh, Tibetan Graduate Studies Seminar, Isabel, Daniel, thank you so much for giving me this great opportunity also to share my work. And uh, further, I look forward to your great comments and suggestions and advice because the paper that I'm presenting is a work in progress and I intend to send it off to a journal. So yeah, it would be really great if I could get some really productive comments and further work on it. So um, I did a little bit of modification in the text and uh, my title is uh, Dead by Poisoning but cautionary narratives instead of tales and inter-ethnic uh, accusation in contemporary Sikkim. Uh, <clears throat> so my presentation firstly shows the dramatized narratives and belief that are indicative of different verbal accusation, shared ideas, fears, and communicative relations between the plural communities in Sikkim. The practice of negotiations illustrates social change or tension, rumors, gossip, scapegoating, social stigmatization, and witchcraft belief. Uh, secondly, the presentation reckons collected uh, belief narratives of how traditionally traditional like cautionary stories are used or invoked in real life <clears throat> accusations. And these cautionary stories are related to thuk, as in poison or poisoning, Tukzam means poisoner or poison keeper, and Tukla means poison deity or poison owner, which is usually weaponized and used as a tool, you know, to reinvoke, um, to accuse or to impute one another. It depicts how such accusations are invoked due to fear of being poisoned and as a way of making sense of the loss of loved ones. I argue that the linking of poison to the, the other and the use of forms of these otherings and demonization stems from increasing insecurities due to drastic growth in the number of immigrants, changes in political inclination, plural communities, economic competition, social conflict, and unequal opportunities in an environment with limited resources. Finally, I conclude in a very hopeful note that such demonization and othering are actually an example of inclusion rather than segregation and of bridging a gap to the fastest growing section of the population, that is the immigrant population. Before I venture into explaining the phenomenon or tradition of death by poisoning, let me first introduce Sikkim. Maybe there are people who do not know where, where it is. And this is the umpteen time I do that. So Sikkim is a small state perched in the center of Great Himalaya, surrounded by Tibet Autonomous Region in the north, Kingdom of Bhutan in the east, Nepal in the west, and the vast Indian Union in the south. Sikkim is synonymous to Bayul de Mojong, and according to Nyingmapa text, Bayul is described as a place of refuge where Buddhist teaching and practitioners will find protection in times of turmoil and need, then I quote Skok, 2010. My informant Sonny Dokompa actually mentioned to me once that there are nine Bayuls across Himalayan plateau. 
It was called Hidden Land because Guru Rinpoche, who is also known as Second Buddha, Guru Padmasambhava, and uh, considered a pioneer in the Himalayan, uh, in the spread of Himalayan Buddhism, considered these places as the most sacred and therefore it was hidden for the purer and higher form of Buddhist practices. There are multiple works available only <laughs> exploring the idea of Bayul in which I do not enter here. But I present here that Bayul exists in three different levels, which are most uh, accepted uh, in the moment I, I consider, uh, which include the outer, the physical landscape and environment as can be witnessed and experienced by all as a place of blessing, the inner, which consists of a deep perception of a place, sacredness achieved through meditation and spiritual practices, and the secret, which includes the transformation of the physical to that of the celestial, achieved by accomplished spiritual masters who can physically pass through the physical to another worldly dimension, which is itself transposed onto the physical environment that ordinary people experience. But my emphasis here is not upon the conception of Bayul or what it is and what it is not. Rather, I bring forth a very controversial vernacular discourse, which is related to its translation. Bail de Majong is literally translated as hidden land of fruitful valley or rice. This translation, uh, the use of the land of rice is actually very conflicting and rarely used in the region. So one of my informant mentioned or rather claimed that we don't say rice, rather a fruitful valley because there was an argument that if the concept of Beul Dramojong is a long-standing name for Sikkim, the Nepalese were the first to introduce or cultivate rice in the region. Therefore, claiming that Nepalese as the Sikkim subject is as old as the concept of Beul Dramojong itself. Presently, Sikkim is a part of Indian state, but before its merger with India in 1975, it was a Himalayan Buddhist kingdom ruled by the Chogyal dynasty formed in 1642 which is actually disputed and uh, Saul Mullard had actually extensive worked on it. Historically, Sikkim was de facto a protectorate of British India after the Treaty of 1861, famously known as Treaty of Titalia. The 1950 treaty with India continued Sikkim's protectorate status until 1975. Later with the Chinese occupation of Tibet in 1959, the Sino-Indian war in Sikkim's border in 62 and 63, the, Chinese, um, the democratic aspirations of the population agitating against the oppressing rule of Sikkim's um, kingship and the breakdown of internal law and order all cited as reason for holding the 1975 referendum that actually culminated in the annexation of <coughs> Sikkim in 1975. After the merger, even though I'm sorry, yeah. After the merger, even though the Himalayan Buddhist kingdom has dismantled, Buddhism still act as a very strong authority in the region. These imprints we can see in political institutions such as Sangha seat, which is like a monk seat uh, saved in Sikkim State Legislative Assembly and Ecclesiastical Affairs Department, which is actually only standing uh, particular segregated department, which is in Sikkim, which look after the affairs of all the religious institutions within the state. Uh, demographically, the ethnic group are classified into three broad categories, the Lepchas, the Bhutias, and the Nepalis. The population of Sikkim is predominantly Hindu, 
with Buddhists comprising a majority, and even Christians and Muslims are in significant numbers. Nepalese migrated to Sikkim at the beginning of 19th century. Uh, when I say Nepalese, there are multiple sub subgroups representing Nepalese, which includes Newari, Limbu, Rai, Tamang, Sherpa, Gurung, etc. Additionally, there are Indian businessmen from Bihar, Bengal, Haryana, Rajasthan, Uttar Pradesh, and other parts of India, generally referred as Madishi, as well as Tibetan refugees who escaped there after Tibet's occupation of China in the 1950s. Therefore, Sikkim's demography is the result of migration, as well as socially engineered settlement and its politics. In short, in a place like Sikkim, where communities are multicultural and beliefs interconnected, the act of uh, the act of othering could be synonymous to some sort of acceptance. Tracing the history of these ethnic uh, categories, after 1891, the imperial administration delineated four dominant groups, Lepchas, Bhutias, Limbus, and Nepali. Due to intense ethnic competition over resource entitlement, one can argue that there is an ongoing aggravated ethnic tension in Sikkim. The boundaries between indigenous Lepcha, Bhutia, and perceived Nepali immigrants are reinforced by religious differences and affirmed by differing attitudes towards the landscape. The state government is faced with the challenging task at the moment of balancing the aspirations of this diverse ethnic group while implementing developmental projects and trying to at least modernizing Sikkimese economy. Previously sustained with shifting cultivation and agricultural occupation, Sikkim was industrially backward and landlocked and land ownership played a vital role in defining the strength of one's ethnicity. Against this backdrop, while communal harmony has been the long ideal norm, such forms of ethnic diversity always and sometimes carries with them the possibility of creating disorder. So after this elaborate introduction to Sikkim, its demography, its ethnic groups, I further take you to the core of this presentation where it gets interesting. So when I'm in Sikkim, or if any one of you come to Sikkim ever, uh, one of the things that you will be warned is to be careful where you eat, or I will tell you, please don't eat on the way. So when I'm in Sikkim, and every time I bid farewell to my parents mentioning, you know, I'm going to so-and-so place to do some research, she would always come up with one, one phrase, which means be careful where you put your mouth. She's afraid that I'll be poisoned for death by poisoning is understood to be very common in the region. Indeed, I have met, met many people during, during my field trips who have been affected indirectly or directly by this phenomenon known to Bhutia as Thuk, to Nepali as Kapat, and to Lepchas as Ning. In a region of weak state presence, a difficult landscape and many sources of co social conflict Sudden deaths are not so uncommon. Poisoning accusation provides a frequent explanation that assign meaning to an otherwise unexplained event, such as loss, loss of a loved ones or a relative. So I came up with uh, considering how I can find these poisons in contemporary belief or in the recent narratives. So one day in winter of 2018, I was supposed to attend a wedding in a neighboring village called Soem, which is two village across mine. I was on the back of a scooter with my uncle who is actually a village monk. 
And while zooming past the hill, conversating through the wind and our helmets, which was very hard, about my interest in, you know, I want to research garden deities, what do you think about them? We passed like a small Russian shop dilapidated with a rusted roof and walls made of uneven planks um, painted green. I wanted to stop and buy a bottle of water because, you know, shouting from the helmets and the wind, it was pretty hard. So my uncle instinctively sped up and said, don't you want to reach home alive? When I inquired about his reaction, he responded, you know, they raise a poison deity, you know, they, they are very dangerous. Two weeks ago, a 29-year-old, like a male teacher who came to Sikkim to work as a teacher from a nearby state called Manipur, which is also one of the northeastern state. Uh, he was teaching in this one English medium school in the region, and he went in to buy food and he like on the spot, he drank a bottle of Coke. And then by the time he arrived at his residence, he was blue, dead within half an hour. The narratives of perplexing and mysterious incident of misfortune or death befalling a healthy young person without any ailments are commonly shared and usually generate suspicion and malevolent powers are operating that they believe, usually ending with the verdict that oh, he or she was poisoned. My mother justified her belief in the reality of poison keeper or poisoners by recalling a death of her childhood friend and neighbor. At the age of 32, Akutsiring came home from nearby supposedly rumored poisoners Bati, which means like a local alcohol bar where they sell like a rice brewed, um, very strong brew. So he was totally drunk at night. Next day, he had a severe stomach ache and vomited blood. Within a couple of hours, he was declared dead. When I asked her how she knew that he died of poisoning, she said he was definitely poisoned. His feet, face, finger, and hands turned blue. He vomited blood and his teeth burst open. More so, he drank alcohol in the rumored place I hear. It's clear. The use of I heard, they say so, someone said so, are key aspect of rumor in these cases. The informant I have interviewed generally <clears throat> haven't seen the poison themselves, but all of them knew the houses, the shops, and people who have been accused of. The rumors are frequently encountered, such as when I'm traveling from Gangtok to northern part of Sikkim with my family and my mother said enthusiastically when we pass one house, she said, oh, you know, Aisunam, uh, she's now married to Lepcha, but she's our relative. My father, upon hearing that, he was like, Tha men pinke means like people who kind of gives nurture like a medicine, let's keep them in distance, like keep them away. Medicine here is euphemism to, to poison. <clears throat> so upon my further inquiry, he said that Aisunam is known as poisoner and she has killed many. In these cases, another important aspect to note is the fact that Aisunam belonged to a Bhutia community and is married to a Lipcha now. This aspect of inter-ethnic difference is more frequent in recent uh, days illustrating embedded social tensions and change, which I will explore further. And I hope it, uh, the stories will clear itself. Recently, the narrative of poisoning have often included rumored about roadside restaurants and st food stall owners. And this could be the result of emerging tourism market in the state. One can be warned every time traveling across Sikkim to avoid certain restaurants and eating places on the way. For example, one time when I was traveling to uh, Gangtok, we passed a place called Bakcha, 
and there is a very famous restaurant. If you go there uh, and if you're not scared, then you should try their pali. It's absolutely amazing. But yeah, so we made a pit stop and then the passenger can use the restroom on the way. So I asked a man whose, whose name was Tenzing and I asked him, can you please buy me a chips and a Coke from the shop? And he looked at me very surprisingly and he whispered, oh, it is dangerous to eat or buy anything from this restaurant. They are rumored to be poison keeper, you know. I'll buy you something from the next shop. It's better to avoid. The above narrative shows that the belief is now a very widespread and attaches itself to impersonal, like a commercial transaction. But before I wanted to find out that where exactly this belief come from or whether this belief were already in the tradition of like Sikkimese. And I found that there were traditional tradition of these narratives of poison and poisoning was more so used as a caution or a warning to, to you know, tell this, you know, like kids not to eat or deal with strangers or go to random places. And it was used as a warning of the impending danger that even parents, they themselves didn't know. Today, the narratives are situated within this ethnic conflict and are made more intense by intermingling of the communities through intermarriages or different communities living in close proximity. The lines between who belongs to who or who belongs with whom are blurring. These narratives are not new and has been long established in the Bhutia community as taking place among families, neighbors and villages for a long time. Earlier, these stories had different and entirely different connotation and uses, but today it has a, it has a difference. Uh, one time I visited Ajunamgi, who is a ritual expert and one of my main informant uh, who lives in a place called Lachung, which is like the, uh, the, the border to China or Tibet. And it's like, the, uh, it's like far from Gangtok, let's say. So on my way, I saw him coming out of a home where he has just finished offering a divination. I joined him and we started to walk towards his home. On the way, he pointed out a house and cautioned me, don't eat this in this house. I heard they are poisoners. I should tell you, you don't know. So don't go and buy anything randomly. I smiled at him, but I didn't ask anything. But once I started uh, once I reached his house and I sat in his kitchen and drank a cup of tea, I kind of remembered what he told me on the way. So I asked him, what is it about? What, is, what, what were you saying? When I asked him, the, his wife, uh, Chum, who is grandmother, she got excited and uh, she started telling me, oh, yeah, you should be careful where you are eating, you know, you don't know about such thing. So I told her, I, I asked her more, like, what is, what is it? Tell me more. So she told me, so once upon a time in Lachung, there lived two sisters. One day, a young man died right after leaving the house of the older sister, where he drank a pint of arak, which is the locally brewed alcohol. Soon the younger sister discovered that her elder sister could use poison and try to help her get rid of it. First, they tied the poison in a huge rock and threw it into the lake. When they arrived back home, the poison was back before them. Then they tried to burn it in the fire, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't burn. Lastly, with no other option left to get rid of the poison, the younger sister locked her older sister in her room and burned her alive. Only by killing her sister could she dispose of the poison. 
we can see that this story of the sisters who lived in Lachung had no emphasis on the <clears throat> ethnic uh, group or ethnic differences. Uh, the person who even died was from the same ethnicity. The fact that the younger sister ended up killing both the sister and the poison is narrated to me as if it was some sort of victory of a good over the evil, you know. <clears throat> I'm sorry. <clears throat> Many stories like these are shared among families in Sikkim. Like these narratives based entirely upon a belief in the poison and its interconnectedness with its owner or the person who, who have the power to poison are then exploited orally and turned into warning about traveling and the increasing mobility within Sikkim. The narrative presented about <clears throat> above have the aura of warning about them presenting the lesson that if you indulge yourself in the wrong choices, you will end up dead. This interconnection between the poisoner and its poison and its owner also has a sense of removal from the everyday and lapses into the realm of the supernatural, where the owner's human self is questionable. Therefore, these narratives are used as cautionary. To me as well, when Chum and Ajula mentioned this narrative, they were telling me as if, because I travel often, so they were telling me as if to warn me of what can happen to me if I'm not careful of where I eat. So these tales have become attached to real places in recent years. And this stems from this house or this person or this ethnic group. And this function is developed through oral narratives, which in contrast to other forms of media can transmit both a harmonious as well as a destructive viewpoint. So let's let me clarify more about who exactly are these poisoners and how what are their aims or what are their intentions. According to my informant, the poisoners are somebody who nurtures or look after a poison entity to become wealthy and successful. Aju Dugel, who is one of my another informant, mentioned to me in uh, uh, you know, <clears throat> uh, one day that there is a village called Namok and there lived a man called Amdo Domfu. And he said, and I quote him, I clearly remember one day in Gangtok town, I heard his name announced when an Indian businessman was beating a drum saying, a man from Namok brought poison, be careful, be careful. I can understand why he resorted to this action. His, father, his wife's father had debts, which he had to pay. Some people say he was paid well for buying the poison, but it didn't last long. How could it? He died soon after. Now who knows where the poison went? I'm sure it must be looking for a new owner still lurking around. Such narrative of poison as an object to buy or sell, especially in the area around Gangtuk, are as common as a belief in poison itself. The inclusion of Gangtok as the only big city with people from different backgrounds is crucial here as it sets the capital city as a mix of multiple communities. But such vague transaction leads to questions such as who sells it, where can one find it, who buys it, how much does it cost, or multiple questions, you know. Many other people from remote Sikkimese village go to Gangtok for trade and end up becoming pawns to Indian cunningness. And this, this is very commonly um, shared stories among different people that Indian merchants are very cunning. 
they bring duplicate um, um, necklaces, gold, and they sell it to local Sikkimese people who are very innocent, and they end up uh, facing the loss. He said, uh, my informant, he said, and I quote him, that Sikkimese people are blinded by the promise of wealth that can come from buying a wooden boxes, which includes a magical power. And the merchant tell them that they have magical power, they buy it, but they do not realize that along with it, they buy pain for generations to come. And then he, he mentioned to me that Thuk, they say, are brought to Sikkim by Indian merchants. Some say they bribe the local people to buy it by giving them money, but other times the local actively buy it. I do not know for sure. However, Indian merchants are the first to disperse among the Sikkimese local. I heard that when you buy the thup, the seller will take your name and address. I do not know how much it cost, maybe 5,000 rupees or 20,000 rupees, which is like, I don't know, 10, 10 euro or something. <laughs> Nevertheless, once you buy it, the merchant takes a picture of you from behind, paste the picture in the drum and beat the drum early morning in Gangtok, announcing that such and such person from such and such place has took this object from me and be careful. This is not exactly like one informant telling me this one particular story. It was like a common, like a shared narratives among all locals that I have interviewed. And to tell you more clearly about it, I also uh, shared you the story of Ajunamge who told me similar story. And he mentioned that Thuk is distributed among the Sikkimese by Indian merchant. Some Sikkimese want to become rich and so they, they buy it and raise it. Merchants, they are the main devotee as it is their deity. They do not even meet. They should only make karche, which is like a white offering, include milk, flour, and rice. I heard that if you do not, if you want to become rich, beautiful, and successful, then you need to make some kind of bond or pact with this deity of theirs when you buy it. It is like you are not only buying it, but owning it as it becomes connected with you. I even heard that people get paid for it. If you want a thuk, then you need to go and see an Indian merchant. He will also give you one lakh rupees just for buying it. After that, he will take a picture of you and announce your name around the town by beating a drum. That's how other people get alerted. So in both this narrative by Aju Dugel and Aju Namge, the identities of the poisoner remain unclear. Apart from the fact that Indian merchants somehow dupe local Sikkimese into believing in the magical powers of these wooden boxes, it remains unclear where the shops and who the buyers are. And I tell you, I went to look for it. I, I, I asked almost everybody in Gangtok, where is this place where they buy this thuk? And who are the people who goes early morning beating the drum? But I didn't find anything, to be very honest. And it's not like... Um, I didn't find it because I didn't research better about it, but it actually is impossible to find. Instead, I wanted to focus that the reference gives us a wider perspective on Sikkimese economic changes and the increasing relationship between the locals and the Indian merchants. Uh, and, and I'll keep it 
to that because I don't want to <clears throat> go beyond my time and explain further into how these relationships are getting complicated every day. But instead, I want to focus on this concept of beating the drum, like dhol pite maya, which is which actually literally translated as beating the drum. And linguistically, there is a trick here. So dhol pite pyo or dhol pite maya actually have three different languages used in it. For example, dhol can be from Hindi or it's like a drum. And we don't say dhol in Bhutia language. So dhol is like drum. Pite is like in, in uh, Nepali, like not pitno, like don't hit, like it's a Nepali. And maya means in Bhutia language, it's like don't do it. So dhol, pite, maya in itself have three different languages culminated together to show one fraction of thought. And I kind of utilize, uh, utilize this idea as in how it has an implication or kind of connotation to this aspect of rumor or some sort of uh, blaming or some sort of, like we see that there is some sort of integration as well as there is some sort of distancing. So to, to, uh, I will tell you more about it <laughs> if I have more time. But uh, without wasting much time, I discovered that poison keeper in Sikkim can be literally divided into two, two types. For example, one, those who are buying it and one, those who are inheriting it. I didn't go into detail about the inheritance one, but they are kind of interconnected. So uh, these inheritors uh, are actually further confi confined to the immediate family, but can spread among different kin. So it's not only related to uh, if I have it, then my daughter will have it. it. It's possible that if I have it, then my anybody from my family can acquire it if there is a, some sort of connection or bond or pact made among them. Uh, to, to emphasize this, Ajudugel again told me that <clears throat> uh, a poisoner, uh, a poison actually can be passed on from one family to another family during weddings. So there is this intermarriage uh, involved. And then I quote him. Once there was a woman whose mother was a poisoner and who didn't know she has inherited it from her. Some people died after eating something she had cooked and then she realized that she was just like her mother. Pity, she was because she owned a restaurant. She closed it down upon realizing her abilities. But one day when her son came back from school, she made him dinner. I think it was cool, like a bread. But next day when she went to room to wake him up, he was lying cold and blue. That means he died. So <clears throat> this, um, these narratives of how uh, once you make a bond with the poison, then you have to offer the sacrifice and doesn't matter who is the sacrifice, either you have to find somebody else. And if you are unable to find somebody else, then there is a higher possibility that one of your family member will become a victim to it. It's a very um, believed, like a very common belief. So Ajunamge mentioned that some children who know that there is a poisoner in the family have requested to inherit the poison intentionally in hope that they can obtain wealth and beauty. Inherited, inherited, poison, inherited poison are more potent than brought ones because it has lived a few years and has had a couple of sacrifices or a couple of uh, victims because they are, because of their powerful presence these poisons, the inherited ones, are usually very hard to even get rid of. And uh, in, in a very different uh, perspective, one of my informants, uh, while traveling from Gantok to 
my home to Gangtok. Actually, he got in from a place called Fudong halfway, and then we started talking about which place to eat and which place we cannot eat. And then I found this informant in the car, and I automatically started uh, recording him. And he told me that Thok is actually Hla, means uh, like a deity or a kind of god, but it's very difficult to explain um, right away what it can be. For our better understanding, let's say it's like a god. Uh, not God, like a spirit, uh, but a good one. It is actually like a treasure to raise at home, like a nopu. Uh, it can make you wealthy and help you prosper. But it makes some conditions. Chief among them is refraining from meat and alcohol. Our people, which he meant Bhutiyas, buy took and want to raise them to become wealthy too. But the main problem with our people is that they cannot stay away from alcohol and meat. Once you have such thing at home, the thuk becomes addicted to them. If you start eating meat and alcohol, then the deity who is attached to the thuk becomes addicted to meat and alcohol, and soon animal meat becomes human. Once meat is offered to thukla, then it is over, he told me. It becomes so strong that you don't even have to poison someone's food. Just the thought of wanting someone's wealth or some like evil thought of she is so beautiful, could actually poison them. This is even shown in movies, you know. Such poison is not easy to get rid of. It can pass down from father to son, from mother to daughter, and it is not even visible to human eye. Such poison is driven by its owner. We believe in, we believe in guardian deities or Yulajibda. So the poison comes with its own owner who needs propitiation on offering from time to time. It is similar to uh, going to some sacred place and carrying a rock or a leaves from that place because if you carry something which you don't have permission to, then there is a higher possibility than that the deity or the spirits that attach to this object will follow you. And this is uh, also very commonly accepted, uh, believed uh, phenomenon in Sikkim. So if you keep it clean and treat it well, it will make you prosper. But if you don't know how to treat it, treat it well, then it can cause havoc. So Tenzing interpretations goes to multiple direction and I'm sure I will get lots of suggestions on that, but I kind of chose uh, some aspect from it. And it is partly that Tenzing actually was a monk and he was also influenced by this very famous Bhutanese movie, which was released in 2007 called Golden Cup, The Legacy. If you haven't watched it, please check it out. It's really amazing and to which he referred multiple times when we were talking. You know, it's like in this movie, in the movie, in the movie, everything was in the movie. So I was like, okay. So here the audience like is introduced to the poisoner as someone who can even like transfer poison from bad thoughts. And I remember um, reading Charles Ramble's article on poison also when he goes to this, uh, finding the uh, aspect of poison in epics and in, in the more older uh, written scriptures and sources. And it's quite similar to how we have this uh, rel relativity with like the conception of poison as something evil or some kind of, you know, like in Christianity, we also have this belief of how there are seven deadly sins and how it works some similar to something like that. So he had this, and this kind of uh, aspect actually maybe, maybe it's very strong comparison here to his, understanding of how Buddhist philosophy works. And then this particular like focus on how poisoners in particular intent or intentions 
gives us much more wider uh, bird's eye view into how the communities are, are shaped with uh, different, different religious uh, inclinations. So continuing from the narratives about the poison deity, this, um, this presentation, I would like to change it directly to the aspect of uh, rumors. And there was this some sort of blame or some sort of imputations among these different communities. And bringing it back when there is a person in certain place or situations belonging to different communities, gain or a certain economic success or climbs into a social ladder, he or she is often subject to suspicion or doubt. And as I'm already mentioned that today's the Sikkimese population is a mixture of people from different ethnic background. Increasingly, the accusation of poison is associated with somebody out there or someone never from their own area or own region or own ethnic, ethnic background. And in this context, Aju Dugil mentioned that we can trace uh, this insecurity and fear to having somebody as the other or the, the community seeing someone as the other, not especially being the other, but what are the aspects that can make a person the other? So Ajudugal mentioned, and I quote him, that most of the poisoners are usually from the neighboring village or from different communities altogether. I have never heard of a poison keeper in my village. I'm 60 years old and until today, I have never heard of someone from my village accused of such thing. There are people I, I hear in Ramtang village, but not in mine, it's a neighboring village. We do not know where and who exactly they are, but I hear in the neighbor village, there are plenty. People from this village do not inherit it from their ancestor even. They buy it directly from Indian merchant to become rich. I hear there was a lady named Gazam, and this is like a, a pseudonym. Oh, sorry, uh, and, yeah, pseudonym. She keeps it, looks after it. It is unfortunate. What are people willing to do these days to attain wealth in life? Her ancestors were not like that. I do not know why she got it and where she got it from. Gordon Allport and Leo Postman actually writes that rumor is a specific proposition for belief passed along from person to person, usually by word of mouth, without a secure standard of evidence being present. In the case above as well, the fact that he heard it happen, not in my village, but by among the neighboring village, is a, some sort of manifestations of othering. Rumor creates this sense of escape, scapegoating mentality and expresses hostility towards certain group. These forms of imputation and blame occur because people feel their security is threatened in a situation in which uncertainty is caused by a rapidly changing social environment. This in terms of changing Sikkimese socio-political economic situation, we will find more clarity that there are so much diverse community at the moment who are uh, in some sort of uh, conflict or in some sort of fight with each other to re-invoke or to re-establish their new form of identity. And I asked actually one of my friend who lost his uh, father to poisoning when he was 10 years old. And he claimed that his father became a victim to a poison nurtured by a Nepali food stall owner where his father seems to have eaten his lunch and then he, he died about, I asked him, why don't you seek justice and why don't you take a legal action against, uh, against the perpetrator? He replied, we all know he did it, but we haven't seen it. We, don't, we do not have any evidence to prove it. 
and court needs evidence, you know. Therefore, we can just hate it and tell everyone else about it. Just like my father, no one, no other person should become victim to it. My father wasn't the first I heard, but the aim is to make sure he is the last. Lewis White in Social Construction and Social Consequences proposes rumor is spread because they sound true and sounded like they might be true. Rumor confirms to the standard of evidence this don't seem false, fanciful, unlike or un even unreasonable to those who tell them and those who hear them. In Sikkim, apart from this, rumor takes the form of imputation and blame of people who are not only newly arrived, but also differ in belief and practice. Rumor, when reinforced within the cherished belief of communities, changes forms and help people make sense of the others surrounding them whose cultural practices and worldviews are foreign within their own cultural context and create newer sense of belonging. Rumor proliferation trace us, uh, help us trace the effect of a conformity cascades in which people will go along with a group to maintain approval regardless of their private doubts. Amid judgment and opinion that contradict my friend, he surely has doubt about what he believes. Although to a great extent, this is redundant when he considered the loss of his father and later his mother while he was still young. The collective belief of the community whose support he will always cherish gives him a sense of belonging and a collective sense of, of hate. Rumor that circulates because of fear of identity and uncertainty, Knapp, he suggested that there is a certain form of rumor called wedge driving rumor because of its effect in dividing groups and aggression, oh sorry, dividing groups and destroying loyalties. Its essential motivation is aggression or hatred. In practice, almost all aggression rumors turn out to be directed against element of our own population or our allies. The role of rumor here is not to seek justice for the loss of loved ones, but to belong among the living by shifting or re-identifying one's belief. To bring back here very briefly, there is this connection between the concept that I already mentioned, the Dol Pite Maya, and rumor, the Indian merchant who go to the town in the morning and announces the name of poison buyer actually remains much questionable. So does the assertion from a couple of people who have claimed that they have heard it. The narrative further suggests that the Dol Pite Maya actually has a very metaphorical meaning in which it can also relate to uh, be, being secretive or to publicly announce. For example, if I talk to my friend and if I tell her some kind of a secret thing that I don't want anybody to else anybody else to find out, then I will tell her, I'm telling you this, but don't be Timaya, like don't tell anybody else. But there, the implications is entirely different and this remains open to speculation. And to um, wrap up what exactly I presented, <laughs> As already mentioned that within this plural setup, such as that in Sikkim, poison narrative is in a both literal and metaphorical sense becomes lived among those team affected directly or indirectly. I remember reading this amazing book called The Secret Tibet and in uh, published in 1952, where he mentions about his um, journey to Tibet via Sikkim. And he mentioned how a Sikkimese princess warns him of impending danger in Tibet and caution him. Poison, you know, are almost living thing. Poison, it is alive and has a will of its own. 
And this, she said it because she said that Tibetans are actually the one who poisons. Through traditional cautionary narratives told by elders to the younger generation, this, this presentation aims to show how oral narratives always carried within it the possibility to be turned into real world accusation. And by delving into this discourse of poison, which can kill and sometimes even transform itself into an entity is both actually a victim and a, some sort of perpetrator. These phenomenon appear to be waning in all rapidly modernizing societies because of the capacity to ameliorate the dislocation ambivalences engendered, engendered by ruler capitalism, transform the relation of production, proprietorship and shortage of resources and ameliorate scarce opportunity. And with that, I would like to end my talk. Thank you very much for listening. And I hope I could get some comments, suggestions, advice, anything is welcome. Thank you.